0: Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to and not in place of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. Spring Church, I am very, very excited this morning because I have a very good friend of mine that's actually in town, two very good friends, and their little uh, baby boy who's with us, Noah. Uh, My good friend, Pastor Nick, who's actually coming out from the Summit International School of Ministry. Now, for some of you, you could put the dots together, the Summit International School of Ministry is where I went to Bible school. That's where I ended up. Lord had to get me there kicking and screaming, but he got me there, and by his grace, I stayed, and the Lord did a great work in my life. But my very good friend here, Pastor Nick, he actually pastors there at the church, uh, church that's on campus, and he leads, I think he's like vice president of the academics. There's something, there's like a huge title to this, and I'm not good with titles, but it's really impressive, really impressive. But he's with us today. He was actually, get this, he was actually my roommate in the dorm. Yeah, we we almost killed each other like four or five times. But God used it, iron sharpening iron all the way, which I'm so grateful for. He is here as well as his wonderful and beautiful wife, Christina, Who is a very good friend of mine. She is a worship leader. She is a preacher. We did six months in Ireland together working at Cork Church, which was a blessing, and their son Noah, who's here with us as well, which we're so excited. He's going to be leading us in the word this morning. He led the winter retreat all week long, which was a blessing, and he's going to share a little bit about the International School of Ministry, the Summit International School. So, Pastor Nick, would you come out? Let's give him a big round of applause. Let's thank you for being out here with us. I'm going to hand it over to you. So good to see you. You're going to be blessed this morning. Open your hearts wide. It was more like we almost
1: killed each other ten times. Maybe more, like silently in our hearts. No, I'm just kidding. It was mutually sanctifying as an experience. So rooming with Pastor Michael was a blessing and a privilege. Uh, But don't ask me for stories because he's got just as many about me as I do about him. So there's, there's no blackmail going on there. Uh, well, again, my name is Nick, and I have the privilege of coming to you from Grantville, Pennsylvania. We're near Hershey. People know Hershey, Pennsylvania, because everybody gets the chocolate. Uh, Grantville is a tiny little town right there. Even Pennsylvanians don't know about Grantville. They know about the casino that's right there off the interstate. So I try to tell them, yeah, there's a Bible school there too. And there's students from all around the world, literally all six inhabited continents come together almost every year, uh, and they are seeking the Lord. We are unplugged at school, which means they give up their phones, their laptops, their tablets, social media access, uh, and they just separate themselves for a season while classes are in session to build their personal intimacy with Jesus and receive an education that leads to a thoroughly biblical worldview. That's what we're all about. Uh, We have a couple different programs there. Our traditional two-year program is kind of our bread and butter. That's the bulk of our student body. Uh, Two years going through the entire Bible, the basics of Christian theology, ministry training. There's elect that specialize in youth, children's ministry, uh, preaching, all kinds of options there for every branch of calling that might be on a person's life. We have two one-year program options as well. One is a gap year program, fresh high school graduates that maybe feel called to do something not quite ministry related, but before they go into another school, they wanna have a really solid foundation laid in their life. The gap program is for them. One year of being unplugged from the rather addicting media plague that's going on right now and just seeking Jesus. Another is our one-year sabbatical program for people who have been around the block in terms of college, they've started a career, and they just want to hit the pause button for a moment. Take a year off to study, refocus, and get ministry training so that they can better use their gifts in the church. But no matter what program a person signs up for at Summit, you're going to get closer to Jesus. And all of our learning is geared toward deepening their love and affection for him in every way. So if any of that sounds interesting to you or maybe someone's coming into your mind that you think should check it out, please take all of our pamphlets that are out there on the table in the, uh, the lobby there. There's an iPad set up with our website. You can even fill out an application right there at the table if you would like. Uh, but we are always taking applications for, uh, for school. So enough about that. I'm not very good at talking about the school even though I I work there. What I really love talking about is the Bible. I love the Word of God. It has saved my life over and over and over again on a number of levels. And I have a very clear word in my heart from the Lord for you today. Actually, the, the moment Pastor Michael gave me the invitation, it wasn't long after that, I just felt very clear in my heart what the Lord would have me say to you this morning. So I'd like you to go with me in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. I want to talk to you about the secret to spiritual warfare, the secret to spiritual warfare. Luke chapter 10, and while we are finding that, I would just like to pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, I ask you for your blessing to be on our time in your word. God, we lay our hearts open before you and we invite you to search us, to know us, to test us and know our anxious thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in us and then lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, we wanna be like you. We wanna be the kind of people that you deserve and are worthy of. I pray that you'd anoint every one of us. God, anoint my lips as I speak, anoint the ears of my brothers and sisters to hear all that's in your heart to say today. We love you and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So just before we get to the text, I want to read you an excerpt from a 2017 article by leading theologian Tim Hawkins. Some of you caught what I did there. If you don't know who Tim Hawkins is, just look him up on YouTube. You'll see why it's funny. But it's actually a pretty good thought. So let me read it to you. This is from faithgateway.com. He says, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Father, we just pray a hedge of protection around Tim and his family. A hedge, huh? I don't mean to complain, but is that really the best you can do? How about praying a thick cement wall with some razor wire on top of that bad boy? A hedge of protection sounds like it's one good pair of clippers away from being removed. And I'm sure the devil's got a pair of those lying around the old Sheol shed. But I guess certain church people think a hedge is going to scare the devil away. I can just see a red, pointy-eared, wily devil prancing up to my spiritual property line, creeping in for an attack but just as he's about to step onto my lawn, he becomes keenly aware that something is not right. What is this I behold on the lawn of my enemy's perch? Is this greenery? I can't get through that. My greatest weakness is landscaping. How did they know? Now, as silly as that is, and as much as he's making a joke out of church culture, which, you know, I even am apt to do at times, one thing that he's right about and I I like bringing this out to us, is sometimes we reduce spiritual warfare to little more than key catchphrases and maybe volume in our voice. And that's our idea of fighting against the devil. I'm going to say the right words, and that's what's going to make my prayer effective. You know, if I don't say it just right, if I don't pray specifically enough, that's not going to be accurate in the heavens and somehow it's not going to draw enough of a line. And our spiritual warfare methods almost become a bit superstitious. They're rather superstitious at times and quite unbiblical. And I want to take you to something that Jesus taught the disciples in Luke chapter 10, where he gives them what I believe is the key or the secret to spiritual warfare. So we're going to read verses 17 through 22 together and then dissect what the Lord is saying to us. He says, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So again, Jesus' disciples, 72 of them, were sent out on mission to preach, heal, and cast out demons in his name. They come back excited. They can't wait to tell Jesus all all about what happened through his name as they were ministering, and he gets really excited, but then Jesus looks at them, and he stops them. Now, it's not quite a rebuke, but it is a warning. He actually tells them that their joy is misplaced. Now, this is not a rebuke for error. It's a warning against misprioritization. It's not a rebuke for error. It is a warning against getting priorities mixed up in their minds. The disciples did have every right to rejoice over what God did through them. They had every right to rejoice over seeing the sick get miraculously healed and demons being cast out of people's lives and no longer able to destroy them. They had every right to rejoice over people getting baptized and coming into the kingdom of heaven because they believed the gospel about Jesus. Those are all reasons to rejoice, but Jesus is telling them that's not the basis of your joy. Those are the effects, they are not the cause. Don't ever get them mixed up. So that's our starting point for the message this morning. But before Jesus reveals the true foundation of joy, he actually affirms their experience. When he says in verse 19 or verse 18 rather, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions. He's being very positive here. He's saying, yeah, you lived out exactly what I've given you to do. Now, I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Of all the English translations that I surveyed in preparing for this message, I actually think the New American Standard Bible caught it the best. In verse 18, when Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, you could probably better translate that into English as I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. If you say I saw something, you can communicate the idea that you saw the entire event unfold. You saw it from beginning to end and everything in between. But if you say, I was watching something, it could be you saw it start and you saw it progress, but maybe you never saw the completion of it. Maybe there was an open-endedness to what you were witnessing that you can't really ignore. You didn't see it quite finish, And that's very important for understanding Jesus' words. In Greek, he's using what's called the imperfect tense. So he's speaking of something that was not complete something he didn't see the fullness of. I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven while you were out ministering. I didn't see all of it, but I saw it start. I saw him colliding into the earth. I didn't see the full event, but I was watching it. So again, the disciples had every reason to rejoice because while they were ministering, Satan was falling. And there's two ways that we can understand Jesus' words here. He may be referring to Satan's initial fall from glory back when he was Lucifer the archangel and had some position of glory in the heavens, but then because of pride and arrogance and thinking that he could be like God, he fell. So it's quite possible Jesus is referring back to that because Jesus is God. He would have seen that in his pre-incarnate state. Before he became God in flesh, he absolutely would have seen that. So it would have been a true statement. There's another possibility though that I actually find more compelling and I wanna offer it to you today for thought. It's quite possible that Jesus is referring to a second fall of Satan. Because even in the Old Testament, we know that Satan fell. He fell from his position of glory, but he still had some kind of dominion or power over human lives. You think about the book of Job. He comes into the heavenly court to accuse Job and try to move God against him, trying to bring curses down on Job and say that if you just take away your blessing, if you take away every good thing you've given this man, he's gonna curse you to your face. You read the book of Zechariah and God is delivering Israel from their exile in Babylon and they're getting to rebuild the city and Zechariah has a vision of Joshua, the high priest, and he's clothed in filthy garments before the Lord of hosts and Satan is at his right hand in heaven's courtroom to accuse him. So there's this idea that Satan, though he was fallen, still had this kind of dominion over human lives. And it's quite possible that what Jesus is saying is, while you were ministering, I saw Satan's grip on humanity breaking. While you were out preaching, while you were out healing, while you were out ministering, I was watching that dominion, that right that Satan had to come before the Father and accuse the people of God, I was watching that get stripped away. I was seeing what we read about in Revelation 12 coming to pass where Michael and the archangels are fighting against the dragon and his angels, but no more place in heaven is found for them. And he's hurled down to the earth having great wrath because he knows that he has only a short time. Jesus says, while you were ministering, I was watching heavenly warfare go down. I was watching the enemy and accuser of your souls losing his dominion over mankind. So again, they have every reason to rejoice. So what Jesus is very likely saying is that the disciples' ministry was the sign that Satan was losing his dominion over humanity. He was losing his natural and inherent right over people. And that makes the most sense of verse 19, where he says, I have given you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you So all of this comes together to give us a very clear picture of what Jesus is trying to communicate. He's saying the manifestation of the kingdom of God, the proof that it really is here is that there is now a power in people that can challenge the kingdom of darkness. It's not just that I'm here and when I speak, demons have to obey. That's evidence that the kingdom has arrived. But an even greater evidence is that my power is now at work in you. My kingdom is not just limited to me, you're a part of it, and so you get to exercise my kingdom authority. You are the evidence that Satan's power can now be challenged. His hold on human lives must be broken because there are now representatives of the kingdom of God here to say that's enough, you must let them go. There's now another and higher authority walking the earth in ordinary fishermen and tax collectors, ordinary people that has the capacity to challenge the powers of evil. That's an incredible reality. And when you look at Jesus' words in verse 19, you find that he's taking several Old Testament verses, plus even one from some, it's called Second Temple literature, sacred writings, not scripture, but sacred writings that were put together during the silent years between the Old and New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew, and he's kind of throwing them all together. Let me read just a few of them for you. Remember, Jesus says, I'm giving you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy. Genesis three fourteen and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. I'm giving you authority to trample on the serpent's head. Deuteronomy 8.15, God led you, Israel, through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. Psalm 91, verses 11 through 13, for he will command his angels concerning you to watch over you in all your ways. In their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on lion and viper. You will trample young lion and serpent. So many Old Testament hopes and prophecies, Jesus is now telling the disciples, they're fulfilled in me. And I pass that fulfilled power on to you. And you now get to own it, to operate in it, to exercise it freely. Everything that your spiritual ancestors hoped for, you now carry within you because the kingdom of God has come. The serpents and scorpions that they wrote about trampling on someday, I now give you that authority to live out what they could only dream of. The sign of the kingdom's arrival was not just that Jesus was challenging the demonic, but his disciples were too their ministry activity was irrefutable evidence that the kingdom of God had now come in power. And the fact that you and I can engage in spiritual warfare in any way at all is still remaining proof that God's kingdom has come. The fact that you can rebuke the devil, the fact that you can cast out demons, The fact that you can get on your knees a a portion of body language that people associate with surrender and submission, that's where we exercise authority. That's where we command strongholds to come down in people's lives. That's how we break addictions. That's how we break spirits of suicide. That's how we see communities get changed. You are proof that God's kingdom has come. This is incredible power that we have operating within us. But as awesome as that is, It's not the ground of your joy. It's not the basis for it. It's the effect. It's not the cause. Jesus says that the destruction of Satan's kingdom through the disciples, it's awesome, but it's not the ground of kingdom joy. The ground of kingdom joy is in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The ground of your joy is that you now belong to Jesus Christ. And you have to understand the implications of this. If this sounds too simplistic, we need to go to the depths of it. Because if this sounds too simple, well, sure, I I know that I'm saved. I, I don't see how that connects with spiritual warfare. We need to develop our appreciation for the cross a little bit more. And how it changed everything. Jesus' words in verse 20, if I could transliterate them right out of Greek, it would be very awkward. It would read something like this. Rejoice that your names, it has been written in the heavens. There's kind of a rule in biblical studies that where there's very bad grammar, there's usually very good theology. And this is one of those cases. Rejoice that your names, plural, it, singular, has been written in the heavens. One of the things that's been suggested by scholars is that this is what's called a divine passive. The names of the disciples have been written in heaven, but God, as the writer, his name is being reverentially kept in silence. Rejoice that your names, not they have been written, no, it, God, he has written them in the heavens. God himself has made you part of his kingdom. He is left unspoken out of a sense of reverence, but he is the author of the disciples' names in the book of life and giving them kingdom citizenship. Another important element of Jesus' words is that this is what's called a perfect tense. Your names have been written. And a perfect tense means that things used to be different. You were in a different state of affairs in the past, but then an event occurred that forever changed things for you. You were in one set of conditions before an event took place and it changed everything forever. In other words, there was a time when your names were not written in the kingdom of heaven. Your names were not written in the book of life. But then you came to me. Then you confessed my name, and in response to your simple faith, my grace translated you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. You were going to hell, but now you have a place in God's kingdom forever and ever. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. This is the ground of our joy. The ground of our joy is not that the spirits must submit to me. The ground of my joy is that the spirits can't touch me anymore. I don't belong to them like I used to. I now belong to the kingdom of God, something that they cannot oppose, resist, or touch. They might be able to afflict me. They can harass me. They can discourage me. They can put up a fight all they want to, but they cannot take my name out of that book. They can never move God to pick up an eraser and say, I'm done with this kid. I'm done with this guy. I'm done with this girl. Jesus says, that's the ground of your joy. That's what makes you rejoice. The Spirit's being subject unto you. Okay, that's cool. All right, that's neat. That's, that's nice. Spiritual gifts, awesome. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for spiritual gifts. But the, the ground of your joy, the basis for why you rejoice in the Lord and why you exercise authority at all is because I'm a kingdom citizen. Because here's the thing. Your salvation is the only reason you can do spiritual warfare You only get to exercise kingdom power if you are a kingdom member. A good example would be like, if we were to celebrate our spiritual victories and and talk about all our answered prayers and talk about the miracles we've seen, and that's the center of everything for us. If we were to make that the very core of our Christianity, it would be similar to an NFL team winning the Super Bowl, but their after party celebrates a field goal from a mid-season game. This makes no sense. Okay, listen, the the field goal, the only reason that field goal has any meaning for you is because you won the Super Bowl. The only reason your spiritual victories have any meaning is because Jesus won the ultimate battle. It's his victory at the cross that gives any of our victories any meaning whatsoever. His victory is what makes them possible. Had it not been for the cross, you and I would only be able to live as victims. We would not be able to exercise power over the demonic. We would not be able to exercise power in spiritual warfare. We would have no hope of doing that. We would be at the mercy of the powers that are out there. But because Jesus won a fight that we could never win, because he secured the victory by his blood and now has passed that power on to us, that's what gives meaning to every fight that we enter into. The only reason spiritual warfare is worth the effort the reason it's worth the labor and the fasting at times, and it's worth the consistency and the persistency and the prayer closet is because Jesus has won it all. He has won it all. And it's our salvation, our citizenship in the kingdom of God that endows our victories with any meaning whatsoever. And you think about it. Let's revisit that point once more where Jesus talks about how your state of affairs has been changed. Everyone in this room, I hope, has a deep sense of awareness of what we should have received from God, what we should have received, what we naturally deserved from Him. Paul Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are by nature children of wrath. That's why we're naturally bent on disobedience, naturally bent on wrongdoing. You don't need to teach your kids how to be selfish. You've got to teach them how to share. It's because humans are fundamentally broken. We warrant the judgment of God by virtue of what we are and we prove his justice with every sin we commit. And despite that, this God who had the right to destroy us, this God who had the right to judge us and pour out his, his just anger upon us said, no, I'm going to die so I can adopt my enemy. I'm going to die so I can adopt you into my family. And I'm not just going to save you and forgive you. I'm going to empower you and make you my representative so that you can go out into the earth and you can tell more of my enemies where freedom and redemption can be found. Yes. And you're going to be commissioned and empowered to bring more people into the kingdom. The cross has changed Everything. That's why salvation is the ground of our joy. There is no meaning in spiritual victory outside of the victory that Jesus has won. Salvation is the ground of our joy because it's the only reason that spiritual power is available to us at all. And this is something that I have been thinking about, preaching about, teaching about a lot lately because I believe we're living in an hour of time where we cannot afford apathy in the church. We can't afford fear in the church. We we can't afford just a a deep-seated sense of comfort. And I just want to be safe within the four walls on Sunday mornings and and stay within my tight-knit little Christian community. No, God's calling us to go out and get in the fight. He's calling us to make war for people who don't even know that they have to fight for themselves. They can't fight for themselves. They have no power to do it. And I suppose this thought is so alive in my heart, even because last night, I didn't have a sermon for the third session I did with your high schoolers yesterday. I, I got to Camp Elam with nothing in my heart. I had no notes. I had no thought. We got about halfway through the day. And then as I was praying, the Lord spoke to me very clearly on calling them to spiritual warfare. High schoolers, they're not too young. Your freshman, your 14-year-old is not too young to terrify hell. Your 14-year-old is not too young to be a living threat to the powers of darkness because that's the calling of every single Christian. You are called to walk out that authority and to go out into this community, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, whatever context God has put you in, and you are to put fear into the heart of what the enemy's doing because you are representing another kingdom. You're the proof that something has come, someone has come to challenge what Satan is trying to do in a generation. The real secret to spiritual warfare is being assured of your salvation. It's knowing that no matter what the enemy throws at you, there is one critical thing he can never throw at you. There is one thing he cannot do. He can discourage. He can lie. He can bring sorrow. He can bring pain. He can do everything that God permits him to do, but he can never touch the book of life. He has no power or authority to make God pick up an eraser and say, I guess that's it for this one. He has no power to do that whatsoever. He might be able to make your days miserable, but he can't touch your eternity anymore. That's now in the hand of your father. That's now in his hand. The only way, the only way that Satan can really gain authority over a Christian again and where there's some kind of exercise of power that he can have over them, is when we begin to esteem his lies as more true and more real than God's promises. That is the only thing that can really give Satan a foothold or stronghold in your life. What's more true? What dictates reality to you? How you're feeling and what Satan's trying to tell you in the midst of it? Or what God has said, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of what the valley looks like? Regardless of what emotions I do or do not have in the moment, God's word rings true. And Jesus models this to the disciples in verse 21 when he rejoices in the Holy Spirit. And he says, God, thank you. Father, thank you that you chose the weak. You chose the nothings. You chose the nobodies. And you filled them with your power. And you're using them to bring Satan's kingdom to its knees. You chose them. They had no power to choose you. They had no ability to empower themselves, but you filled them up with all that you are. That's the ground of kingdom joy. I'm saved. The devil might be able to touch my body, might be able to touch my mind. He might be able to touch my home, but he can't touch our eternity. He can't do that anymore. Jesus has taken that authority away. So what we're dealing with today is not a discussion of How do we discern when Satan's attacking us or when life is just being life and what are the methods and techniques? I I don't really know any techniques to spiritual warfare. I, I really don't. What I do know is that I belong to a kingdom. I was made part of a kingdom that cannot be conquered. And I've been commissioned to go out and represent that kingdom in the name of Jesus. And when I speak that name, whether it's in prayer whether it's in preaching, whether it's in teaching, whether it's in one-on-one evangelism, there's power there. And the kingdom of darkness has to come down. Amen? Amen. I'd like to invite everybody to stand with me. And if the worship team could come, I think we got to sing that song, Every Victory, one more time. Because that was, I've never heard that before, but that was wonderful. Even if we could just do the chorus. I want to give an invitation today, just a, a brief altar call. If you've been under spiritual attack And it's really been wearing you down. It's been very hard lately. And you've been feeling pressure from the enemy. You're feeling it in your mind. You're feeling it in your body. You have just been feeling like the enemy is on you. I want to invite you to come and pray. But we're not coming to ask for help. I want you to come down and I want you to rejoice. I want you to make war against the enemy by defying everything he's telling you. It's time to rise up and use the authority that Jesus has given you. You are not to come down here and grovel and say, God, please help me, please. No, you are a son or daughter of the king. It is time to thank God that you are saved and it's time to tell your enemy, you know what? You've made yesterday really miserable. You made today really rough and we're not even halfway through it. And I don't know if tomorrow is gonna be any better, but eternity's looking awesome and you can't touch that. You can't take away the promises of God from me. You can't take away the peace that surpasses all understanding. There are things that you cannot touch, and I'm done letting you take them from me. I'm done letting you make me believe that God's promises are conditional. They're conditioned on the day. They're conditioned on how I'm doing. There's no fine print in the promises of God. If you belong to Christ, they're yours. If you belong to Jesus, victory is yours. Power is yours. Peace is yours. Courage is yours. Thanks be to God. So if God is speaking to you and your heart's being stirred, just begin to make your way to the front. Just come to the front and begin thanking the Lord for your salvation. I'm going to pray for just a few moments, and then we'll turn it over to the worship team. Holy Spirit, we invite you now to come. God, take this word. Take this word, oh God, that you have spoken over us Lord through this frail vessel. God, I am no stranger to the sense of defeat. I am no stranger to that feeling of being beaten down and kicked around by what the enemy is doing. But God, I thank you, Lord, that in every battle you have faithfully reconvinced my heart over and over and over again, Lord, that victory comes not when the attack stops, but victory comes when we realize the attack has no power over us. God, I thank you that there is no battle in this room that has any real authority over the life of the person being afflicted. There is no battle in this room that has actual power over the destiny of the believers that are being afflicted. God, remind us this morning of who you are and of who we are in you. God, thank you that you are fighting for us. Lord, make war on our behalf today. And Lord, teach us how to join you in that fight. We are done fighting from the ground before the enemy. Lord, we are called to conquer. Teach us how to exercise the authority you've given us in Jesus' mighty name. Let's go to the Lord and worship for just a few moments.
0: Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church.